Welcome to podcast number 225. This is the extra podcast from Northview. My name is Paul Siemens, and I'll be your host today. With me, I have Crystal Taves. Hello. Wow. Jeff Buck. Crystal representing the 51%. Is that what they say? 51% of the public is female? No? No. Oh. I guess so. Sure. So are you okay representing 51% of the entire population? I am. Okay. For today, anyways. I've got a lot of questions, Crystal. <laughs> Great. As many of you know, that is the voice of Dr. Jeff Buckham, and that familiar laugh of Ezra Okoti. Yeah. You have a real radio broadcaster voice. You know, I've been told that. Thank you. I could do my Steve Brown impersonation. Okay, go ahead. Do you guys, do you need to, might need to tell okay, people who Steve, Steve Brown Steve is? Steve Brown is a, uh, a pastor and professor who actually has now a parachurch ministry called Key Life Ministries. He's based down in... Orlando, Florida, and uh, his, he has a fantastic radio voice. So it goes like this. I'm Steve Brown. You think about that. That's right. He does say that at the end. Yeah. That's after <laughs> he, he, preaches, does this, he does this little two-minute uh, radio he, but thing. But he preaches into the radio. Yeah. Like he's that. Yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, what he's did a good the fifty, man. What did the 51% think of that? Is that all he does? Just two minutes? <laughs> she didn't even answer me. <laughs> He actually has two <laughs> radio broadcasts, and you can get them online if you want. There's the short one. I can't remember the name of it, but then there's like an hour-long one as well, which will play on Christian radio down there and all that kind of stuff. So so good. Well, today we've got a number of questions that came in. Uh, the first one is from a, a, podcast, a, a podcast listener who recently had a grandparent pass away. And he's saying that his grandfather passed away, and he loved his grandfather dearly. He was a Christian, and so he's happy that his grandfather is with Jesus in glory, yet he is still feeling a lot of grief, a lot of sadness. Uh, he says, he's finished his race, and I should be joyful that he has, and I am, but I still feel the hurt of him gone, and a small part of me selfishly wishes him back. Why is that? And should I feel that way, or should I just be happy? No, you should feel awful. Death is an enemy to be fought at every turn, and you mm. should feel horrible when, you're, when your family dies, when people and your loved ones die. Absolutely, that's everything natural about it, so much so that we have lamentations that talk about wondering why God, why God continues to let people die and why he doesn't bring his universe to its final consummation now. So no, you should absolutely feel that way. And yet at the same time, we, we don't, what is it, what's the language? Don't mourn as those with no hope. Mm -hmm. But there's two things said there, right? We, we mourn, but not as those with no hope. So the, the proper Christian response to death is uh, anger, mourning, frustration, yeah, individually longing to see the loved one again but also recognizing that because we're Christians, we will. And, it, it, you know, we have a gap of time between the time we saw him last and the time we will see him again. And then when we see him again, it'll be an eternity. And that's great. I think anytime we've had a close relationship with somebody and they've impacted our lives, we're going to miss them when they're gone. And I was just cleaning out my front hall closet this weekend, and I have hanging in there still my grandfather's leather jacket, and he passed away 
15 years ago. But for me, that was a memory of him that I wanted to keep. And I thought as I was cleaning it up, I'm, I'm glad I still have that leather jacket. Like he was someone that was really special to me all my life. It gave a lot of input into my life. And, and for a lot of years, I missed him a lot more on a daily basis. Now I still have great memories that I tell my kids about with, about him. But um, mm. I think it just shows that strength of someone that's invested in your life. Mm. I think death, I mean, we all know death is very cruel. Death is ugly. It is nasty. And it doesn't matter whether you, it was unexpected or expected. Still, death is nasty and cruel. And we see in John 11, Jesus is told about Lazarus. Now, Jesus, son of God, he comes and he, he would later re- bring uh, Lazarus, Lazarus back to, from the dead. But when he comes and he learns about Lazarus's death, he's deeply troubled. We mm-hmm. also told that he weeps uh, because of that. So, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, death, whichever way you look at it, is ugly. And it will definitely cause you to, to grieve and to, to weep and to mourn. So why is it that... Um, and I, that's a, the question that's being asked is one that... Uh, I think a lot of Christians think, but don't actually express. They feel like they're being unfaithful if they mourn. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just me overstating the case. Mm-hmm. What is it about the Christian community that makes people feel like they can't mourn? Or that we don't... That, uh, there's almost this attitude that says we have to be stoic about life, that, that the real Christian response is, is to be impervious to these sorts of trifles. What is it about? Do you think? Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not the way that most, several people think. I, I tend to oh, feel after being in the general. Christian community that seems to be a way that a lot of people handle. Yeah, I think it seems like many people think that we just have to be happy because now our Christian brother and sister, after they die, they're in heaven with Jesus, and that we should just be happy for them, and that we shouldn't mourn at all. But the fact is that death is a result of sin and as a result of the fall. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus will come back and make all things new. And until that happens, we are going to feel sadness and grief. And we should. I mean, even Jesus felt sadness and grief when he was uh, going through his incarnation, his earthly ministry. So the fact to think that we shouldn't, I, I don't see that as being... Do you think that people, biblical. when they hear us say, though, from pulpits all around the place, talking about well, how God has purpose in suffering, that maybe they hear us... Uh, n- not deliberately, but kind of tacitly saying, so don't worry about it. Hmm. Uh, and I, I know that when I'm saying that, I'm not. I'm trying to give hope to the suffering. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that you should not mourn or feel bad or that the right response to problems like this, to financial hardship, to uh, the death of a family member to the loss of loss of a, a child going wayward that these are not these aren't grounds for uh, divorce these aren't grounds for mourning and that we actually as Christians really really should feel long and hard about about these things I think we've lost as a community uh, when you read through the Psalms you've been studying the Psalms with women's ministry you read lots of laments and even corporate laments where people express their frustration before God and Yesterday, as we were teaching, we were teaching on Psalm 22, and I, we had a song that was this lament song of Jesus on the cross. And I thought, like, how often, I said to the group, how often would we go into church and hear a song saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. We don't 
talk in that kind of language in our worship. We think everything has to be happy and joyful. And I think we miss out on ministry there because we present this picture to the people that come into our church that everybody here is fine and good. And there's no room for my sorrow and my misery. And there's no room for my hurt and my pain because everybody around me, their life is just peachy. And so... Right. And somebody asks you, how's it going? You just want to say, it's awful. awful. But you don't. Eh, it's good. Or I mean, I'm maybe we're... We're getting to the point where we can be more honest about these sorts of things. Right. Just, that's have... something that frustrates me about the Christian community. Mm-hmm. It seems like, and that's what's, what makes our art so bad. <laughs> I mean it. It's yeah. getting back to our art, yeah. but that's because we art is a art is the product of emotion. And so, mm-hmm. if you don't feel things deeply, you're not going to make good art about it. Yeah. The reason that do you remember back in the day, Ezra? You might not, because it was white people music. But uh, totally. you too, remember you too? Of course, it's like you who, <laughs> you what. <laughs> So you too. Remember no, they had that song back in the nineteen eighties, they had that song you still not haven't found what I'm looking for. Yes. Uh, off mm-hmm. the Joshua Tree yes. album. I remember being that was kind of my first foray into the Christian world at that kind of stage of my life. And I remember people being really frustrated with you two for for singing a song about that asking that question when they're they they were I mean, many people said they're oh, they're Christians and yet you're still saying you still haven't found what you're looking for. What's wrong with you? And yet, that, 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 isn't that a common feeling that Christians have all over the place? That that I mean, I, and in subsequent albums, you two has come out and said uh, in many songs that yeah, I'm waiting for the great consummation of all things. It still it still don't have it yet, and we live in between times, and there's a frustration about living in between times, and that's a great song because you're dealing with the heartache that comes between times. Switchfoot sang a great song uh, called Vice Verses uh, that deals with the challenge. But if you don't feel that, you're not going to paint paint well. You're not going to write songs well. You're not going to do do movies well because you have to deal in the depth of human agony and emotion to make the art. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if um going back to the question that you asked Jeff, you know, why do Christians have to like feel that they have to put a happy face when things go sideways? And I'm wondering whether it is a worldview issue where in our world today you know you want to make sure that you put your, you you have it together and if you don't have it together then you're a loser and so that's part of the narrative that the mm. secular world will tell us and so i'm wondering whether christians have bought into that worldview and so they bring it or it shapes them their thinking in in a way so when they come into church you know you don't want to show your cards you don't want to show exactly how things are going because you don't look like you're needy or you're you're a loser or you're struggling that's why everything's all good so you dress well you drive your car you you come all smiley smiley but behind the scenes things are going and then you go home put your sweatpants on and actually are like this is what i'm really feeling like exactly. i don't want to i don't want to get up give me the ice cream yeah so i'm wondering but that's just guys who do that right <laughs> Girls never eat okay, ice cream or chocolate right. or nothing like that. No. So I'm just wondering if it is a, a a worldview thing, like Christians having bought into a secular worldview and kind of like syncretizing. Okay, but you think it's a bit of a prosperity gospel worldview, though, too? It, 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 I think it's almost it. more that way, because I often find non-Christians more yep. realistic about their life totally. than Christians are. And it's like we feel like if we talk about our failures, then we're admitting that God isn't good enough for us or that... Mm. We're in a situation that's whatever. Very that we can't interesting deal point. With. Yeah, yeah, and then the Bible. Yeah, the Bible's filled with f- talking about failures <laughs> and suffering mm-hmm. and pain yeah. and and joy, like exulting in joy. Right? Mm-hmm. Praise to the Lord. Mm. Sing praises to His holy name. I, I mean, re- you, 
I remember one time I was doing a funeral of someone, I forget who, and uh, the family member, uh, one of the family members who had lost their loved one came up to me and just said, my son told me, Pastor, as you proclaim the word and, any, and everything like that, yes, the Christian message tells us to rejoice always, but right now I just want to cry. So please, if you could just be sensitive to, to my family member who's here and mourning the death of their loved one. Yeah, we want to remember them well, but the language of let's celebrate his life and let's happy, happy, joy, joy when, when, yeah. when he's dead, he, he's just not there yet. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally right. I think when we've gone away from the language of even, even saying like, oh, I'm going to a funeral. No, people will say, oh, I'm going to a celebration of life or I'm, I'm going to a memorial no service. But this this language of funeral gives a feeling of of grief and sorrow that Defeat. people just are trying to avoid. Ezra, is that what you're trying to say? What? Well, that is a worldview thing because I mean, there's no real category for death in the West is not something that we want to own. So we have our our morgues, and they are private places, and dead bodies go there, and they get painted in a mm-hmm. way that makes them look alive. Mm-hmm. So that, and then they get put in a box that's very comfy. And then mm-hmm. they get lowered into a great. My point is that that, I mean, the I imagine there are a lot of people who are listening to me right now mm-hmm. saying I don't. I've never had anything to do with death. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting is because the culture at large doesn't mm-hmm. want they we just we keep it at arm's length because it. we have no they have no answer. Is that what you're trying to say? Because I understand. I agree with you that mm-hmm. there's a worldview thing, and so you have to be happy, happy, happy all the time. Because you know you don't want to get bogged down in thinking about the deep issues mm-hmm. of life. Is that what mm-hmm. you mean? There's part of that. Yes, absolutely. And see, um, so I went to another funeral, and this one I was just. Is this what you do <laughs> most of the time? <laughs> no, I, I'm, it's I'm free a, time. No, I'm a pastor, so I walk with people through their highs and their lows. Anyway, oh. so I was, <laughs> I went to a graveside. Uh, this this couple that lost uh, their baby. And there was a Canadian pastor. This guy's an immigrant, and so it was a Canadian pastor doing the the graveside thing. And but what the pastor found very strange is, we Africans, once the the body, once you're at the graveside, you will lower the body, and then everybody will stay until the dirt has filled the mm. the, the hole. But uh, in many in many Western funerals, if you're going to uh, like gravesides, once the body is lowered, oh, the body is just left up, yeah, until right. everybody's gone, and then it is lowered. Yeah, they do the dirty work afterwards. Afterwards, yeah. But from an African uh, co- uh, context, we we all go once we have covered, and once the the soil is being put over, then the reality is this person is gone like they are not coming back it's it's finished it's over and so there's a lot of wailing a lot of mourning there and so it comes back to then what you've been saying jeff like the whole sanitization of death um in in the western world is something that um i see often and i'm wondering just as someone who's an immigrant looking from outside in whether Part of the reasons why, yes, uh, the um, the prosperity gospel is one, but whether just the cultural story where we want to just distance ourselves as best as we can, as much as we can, mm-hmm. from the mess of death. Yeah, I know personally we had one year where I lost three grandparents and then my own son. 
And that year was a lot of grieving and it took me a lot of years to come back from that. Mm. And so you just have to walk through, you have to walk through those years. And I was so glad that people didn't force me to be happy in the midst mm. of that. Yeah. You, if you, you lost a son? Yeah. Uh, my son, Trevor was a twin. Wow. Yeah. And oh, so, wow. yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. Mm. Never do that. If you're grieving out there, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. To and it takes me. time. And whatever. Yeah. Like I, you know what? You might f- be feeling great one day and then the next feel like you don't want to open the curtains. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, I've, I say whatever, not because I don't care about the pain, but that, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's classes no like rule. grief share here at church that help you walk <laughs> right. through that with other people right. that know yeah. what it's like that aren't going to give you those platitudes of just That's get right. over it. That's right. Yeah. So don't feel like you have to quickly rush to happiness and joy and, but feel free to sit in that. If you're feeling pain, feel free to sit in it, lift it up to the Lord in yeah. prayer because he knows. I mean, yeah, exactly. He knows. And you can see examples of that uh, throughout the scriptures as well as his people lifting up their grief and their concerns to him. So, yeah, on to the next topic. Uh, we've got a listener here who wrote in and said that uh, he quotes Exodus 6, verses 2 and 3, which says, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, I did not make myself known to them. And so our, our listener is quoting this, and he's saying, Okay, but then when we look in Genesis 12, 8, we see that Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D again. So his question is, if Moses is writing that God told him that he didn't reveal himself by his name previously to Abraham, why is it in Genesis that Abraham is calling upon the name of so the for Lord? So cl- for absolute clarity's sake, I'm sure everybody understood that the question is, in Exodus 6, the, the name Yahweh, mm-hmm. capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is found as if God is introducing himself by this name. And prior to that, the idea is, like, hey, he, I've never actually introduced myself by name to others. That's what made it remarkable that he did that with Moses. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to Genesis 12, you find that actually L-O-R-D, capital all caps, is there. Right. So what's going on, Moses? You cheat. I'm kidding. I don't think he's a cheat. <laughs> so let me compare this to Jesus in Matthew 18, saying uh, in response to uh, what should happen if somebody sin- your brother sins against you, you should uh, take two or three witnesses, you go and you confront them. If they don't listen to you, you take it to the church. Now, think about that for a minute. Jesus is standing there. He's not died Or been resurrected yet, and he's saying, take it to the church. What's going on? And it's an anachronism. It's it's the idea that that the writer of that passage, Matthew, is writing from the perspective of a fulfilled of a church. He he already is in a place of a church, and so he is kind of writing back into the mouth of Jesus this idea that Jesus had. Certainly, he's not making it up, Matthew's not making it up that Jesus said this. He's just putting the full, the more full, fully realized idea into the mouth of Jesus. I would say the same thing is happening in, uh, in um, Genesis. Genesis. And 
I, I, I would call it anachronism, meaning against time. Uh, the idea that it's sort, it's sort of a more fully realized understanding of who God is now being dropped back into, into the passage mm-hmm. uh, there. There are other places in Scripture that do similar sorts of things, and uh, it's not actually all that uncommon. Yeah, so with Moses writing Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, the whole... Uh, the Which whole... is debatable, Paul. Pentateuch. I know. <laughs> J-E-P-D-3, 4. Isn't it D-P? D-P? I don't even know. For those of you who are listening, there's a big debate about who the authors are, uh, who the authors... And whether it was just one or multiple. Are of the, yep. of the Pentateuch. So yep. the Pentateuch's first five, first five books of the Bible, and they're like uh, liberal scholars in the last while have... When I say last while, I mean what last two hundred years, mm-hmm. have argued that actually it's five different authors or four different authors, and each one has a different name for God. One's the Jehovah God, one's the Elohim God, J E P, the priestly, and the Deuteronomy. Deuteronomist. Yeah. Yep. So there's a big debate about this. I just think I actually think Moses did it, but uh, and there's some good reasons for that. But you don't need to ask. I mean, you can write in and ask that kind of thing. That's good fun. Mm-hmm. But anyway. I totally cut you off, Paul, to throw <laughs> okay. in that very important thing. But this does actually have a part to play in, the, in this discussion, is that some, some people come to that and say, see, well, this is proof that you're dealing with different authors. Sure. And, and um, I mean, even if, yeah, we won't get back into that topic. I'll just go back to what I was saying. But Ouch. That's okay. No, no, we could just... Uh, shut down. We could take, why we could take look, a couple why of are you different staring at me? rabbit trails. What are you doing? Who? You put the knife away, Paul. <laughs> no, look, Paul, I didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Go on, Paul. Okay. What are you saying about I, Moses? I, I don't even remember down. now. Uh, okay, so when Moses is writing this, though, he's been, the name of the Lord has been revealed to him. He's writing this at a time when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. And he's writing this to them, showing them that like even if you put the name of the Lord in there, he's showing them that yes, Abraham did worship the same God. It was the we're same God we we're following. Yep. Yeah, he's not. He's he doesn't want to give him necessarily another name, even though God reveals Himself as Elohim and things like that. But uh, yeah, he's showing he's showing the Israelites as far he's encouraging them, them even to show them that their forefather Abraham worshipped the same God that we are worshiping. And mm-hmm. this would be that's good good explanation for mm-hmm. why it would be there. Mm-hmm. Great. And then on to the next one. This one is really short, and it kind of is good because of the news that we had in the last week. We had the Pope visiting, and the question is, is the Pope a false teacher? Crystal. Whoa. No, that's not for the 50, 51%. <laughs> you 49% is going to answer that one. Where's Shailen? Where's Shailen when you need him? You don't so know who you, Shailen okay, is. Let, let, let's, let's have a conversation about false teachers and false teaching. Let's first, yeah, let's define what, what makes someone a false teacher. Yeah, so the Bible is interesting here that Paul calls false teachers, uh, false teachers, and I'm, I'm going to argue, and I'll give you a couple of passages of Scripture and not, not try to go into too much detail. It's my view that in... Uh, in that there is such a thing as a false teacher who is deceived and being uh, deceiving and being deceived. So you read First Peter and you get you get that right, uh-huh. and they are condemned, uh, and they've been destined for destruction. This is all language in the in both First and Second Peter. Okay, uh-huh. so there is such a thing as somebody who is teaching false doctrine. They don't always know 
that it's false doctrine. I think that's what it means that they're de- deceived and or deceiving and being deceived. Mm-hmm. They actually believe some of it. I, I, I'm convinced that some Mormons actually believe what they're teaching is the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they are false teachers, and so so there's one category: false teacher, the condemned to hell false teacher. But I think that there's another category of those who who are involved in false teaching, but I wouldn't call them false teachers. Now, I'm going to appeal to 1 Corinthians 3 here, and the reason I'm going to do that is because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that he's he's the master builder and he's building uh, the church mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. foundation, and no one else can lay a foundation except for him, who except for, for Jesus Christ. But some people build, and this is referring to leaders who come along after Paul, like people like Apollos who come along after Paul and build on that same foundation, and they might build with you know, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Uh, the gold, silver, precious stones will last the test of fire, and that fire will come on the, on the last day, the great day of judgment. And there will be some people who built upon the foundation of Jesus, but built with wonky theology. Mm-hmm. That's what he's referring to there. Mm-hmm. Who built with some, some wonky theology on top of the foundation, who will be saved, and the language is, as yet through fire. So the fire that's burning up the wood, hay, and straw that they built with, they will realize, oh man, I was wrong about that. So what do we call that? We call that false teaching. Mm-hmm. Were they a false teacher? Well, I guess. I guess, but, but, not, not, like the first but not like the first one. Mm-hmm. So, so look, what I'm saying is I think that there's biblical warrant to say that there are false teachers and there's false teaching. Uh, and I don't know how you want to do that. You want to go category one false teacher is you know, condemned, condemned to, to destruction. Uh, category two false teacher, I, I don't even want, let's not use the word false teacher, a, per, a Christian, who's what they are, who involves themselves in false teaching. Now, I think a lot of pastors feel that, fit that bill, and I think that I probably have wood, hay, and straw. I just don't know what it is. Somewhere, yeah. And I, I, if I knew, I would, I would avoid it. And because it's, I mean, the first Corinthians 3 says, be careful how you build. So mm-hmm. all that to say that I think it's a, I think the answer to the question is a little more complicated than just saying, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of people who come out and say, yes, false, he's a false teacher. So what makes the difference between a false teacher and a Christian who's involved in false teaching? And my answer to that is actually in 1 Corinthians 3 as well. It's, it's the foundational question. Mm-hmm. You cannot build on any other foundation but Jesus Christ. So the question then I would ask is, does the Pope, uh, does the Pope establish a different foundation than the gospel that Paul preached? Hmm. For salvation, uh, yeah, yeah, and I, we would have to have a long, uh, I think, a longer conversation about that, and get in, involved in some some uh, some specifics about Roman Catholic theology, and understand not just what is being said and the way we understand it, but what they mean by what they say. I say this because I've had lots of conversations with Roman Catholics, and sometimes the same words are used for different meanings, mm-hmm. right? So, so yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, they use justification and sanctification differently. And right. So the same idea is there, but they just use different terms, and that's where a lot of the confusion has come. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just, I'll put my cards on the table a little bit. I have significant problems with Roman Catholic theology, huge problems with it. I still believe the Reformation is necessary. 
Although with that said, I think there are certain forms of Roman Catholicism, particularly in the United States, that have been heavily influenced by evangelicalism. And so if you talk to a Roman Catholic who's been heavily influenced by Roman Catholicism or by evangelicalism, they sound like John MacArthur sometimes. Which, I mean, if you're listening, if you don't like John MacArthur, pick 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 somebody. I'm saying MacArthur because he's he's a relatively reformed Christian. I mean, he's a guy who's on the radio all the time. And they sound like him because they listen to his radio broadcast. And so here's somebody who's attending a Roman Catholic church. But if you ask them their belief system, it would largely be... Evangelical. Yeah. And so to me, it's a case-by-case situation. Uh I, I struggle a lot with uh, the Second Vatican Council, and certainly with the Council of Trent, and the anathemas that were issued in the Council of Trent have never been rescinded. The anathemas meaning uh, the we reject Lutheran theology, basically, or Reformed theology, uh, without any hesitation. And if you hold this viewpoint, you're going to hell. That's the that's the viewpoint. I, Second Vat of uh, the first the Council of Trent. But when the Second Vatican Council came around in the 1960s, they, it sounds like they equivocated a little bit on that, but they haven't actually removed those anathemas. And so I, there are still some significant problems that exist between what the Roman Catholics say and what I would say are evangelicals, or what I believe the scriptures teach about uh, salvation. Yeah. I, I also don't think the Pope is, is God's apostle. <laughs> And he's infallible? No. You don't think and he's infallible? I don't think that when he speaks ex cathedra, he's infallible. I think the entire doctrine of purgatory is made up. Right. But Agreed. that was spoken ex cathedra, meaning from the throne. And so I think that that, that that is adding some stuff to the Bible that isn't there. So I don't... Okay, but then we're in catechism. People are sitting there thinking, I'm sure, oh, that makes him a false teacher. Uh, okay. Or does it make him a Christian who's false teaching? Hmm. I, we right. can... Like what does the Mary stuff? Right. Does the Mary stuff is that foundational? And sometimes it sounds like it is, because she sounds like she's a co-redemptress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's ways that she is talked about in that way. But then if you talk to some Roman Catholics, they'll be like, "No, Jesus is our only Savior, and He's our only hope. It's just that Mary intercedes for us on behalf." Now I don't agree that Mary's interceding for you, but that's not a foundational. False teaching, I don't think. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Did no. I did I just punt that? I did. No. I did punted it badly. No, I but, but again, you shanked a, it. No, I mean off like, the side of your foot. Like, I wanted to make mean? it sound like I was answering the question, but I kicked it out of bounds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think there's a very clean, clear cut yes or no response to that question because for me, I before you label someone a false teacher, man you'd have to make sure that you really understand and know where that person is coming from, what their heart is, what their theological position is regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, when you say their heart, mm, uh, really? Meaning, Do what, I need to know what their heart is before I can... can I, can't I judge their teaching and evaluate it that way? See, now when you hear someone teaching something... When you hear someone teaching something and the individual uh, is teaching something that's wrong and then you bring correction to them, are they willing to, to debate? Are they willing to listen or are they going to be unrepentant or adamant sticking to their ways and choosing to bull through regardless? 
of whatever it is that you're trying to say or yeah. whatever correction that you're trying to say. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Look at the heart of the individual. Okay. The reason I, I'm pushing back a little bit is that I, I, don't, I don't know if the intent and the warmth of a person's personality has anything to do with whether or not they're right or wrong about theology. Yeah, and, and again, I'm not talking about their, whether they're friendly like, like, or kind. No. Like, I mean well. Like, I actually think Arius meant well. I think Pelagius meant well. I think a lot. I think Joseph Smith meant well. Yeah, but maybe, maybe Paul's looking at me like that's not true. Uh, no, they, my eyebrow goes up to that one. <laughs> but okay, maybe he wasn't. Maybe Brigham Young did. I don't. I don't know. I, I, I'm just saying that I think that there are a lot of really kind people who are really good teachers in the sense that they're uh, understandable and eloquent and even even fantastic orators who are false teachers of the first variety I mentioned. Exactly. The question is, are they teachable? So, I'm, I'm so that's thinking, what you mean by the heart, yeah. Yeah. their teachability. Yeah, yeah. their teachability. Yeah. So, so where's yeah. their heart at? So they might just be mistaken and yes. need to be corrected yes. a la Apollos. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Which all of us have been at different times, too. Mm-hmm. Well, speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll admit it. Oh, speaking for the 51%? Yeah, that's right. There you go. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm unfortunately speaking for most of the 49%. <laughs> that you think you're right all the time. <laughs> that's the difference between men and women right there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong. No, not us. <laughs> not you, Paul. Right, buddy? Of course not. Okay, th- dude, seriously, put the, put the knife away. <laughs> All right, on to the next one. Um, we have a question here that says, I have a question about discipleship. We often use the word discipleship or the term go make disciples. My question is, what, is dis- what does discipleship actually mean and what does it look like in the context of the church and outside the church? I'm because you guys are all hesitating. I'm gonna, go jump ahead, buddy. You, no, you jump, jump in. in. Jump in. Go, Jeff. Go. Go. Um, so I, I'm going to say something provocative now. Okay. <laughs> What's new? We are waiting with. Well, you guys feel free to challenge me. This might be one of those like Woodhays double things. Okay. I don't think it is though. Okay, let's, so ready? Listen, let's hear your full language. I, the word disciple means um, it means learner, in its basis basic sense. Right. To be a disciple is to be someone's student and to learn. So, yes. so if you become a disciple of Jesus, you're in the Jesus school, right? Yeah. And you become a people would say follower, but it's a learner, and learning in those days was far more, uh, far more intensive than just you know. Than just you know taking some tests. It was an interactive. But too, so if yeah. you get you get you get passages of scripture that talk about how disciples go home. John six, they but they're called disciples by John, but they leave. So, so a disciple is. It depends on which author is using it. I, I think that several times uh, in in the in the gospels, disciple is just another word for Christian. But it doesn't always have to be that way. So at its base, a disciple is is a learner. Um. So if that's the case, then we could probably say that you can be a disciple of Jesus and not yet be a Christian. <laughs> Go with me here. I'm not saying that that's the way a lot, all the biblical writers use it in all their contexts. I'm saying that in John's situation, that's exactly what he's saying in John 6. Yes. Here's a bunch of disciples who aren't Christians. So you can be a disciple, meaning that you're a learner, but you're not a Christian. 
But you're so not a I follower. Think you, I think you can disciple people. So it, it, traditionally in the church, what we've done is we've said, well, there's evangelism, and that's what happens to somebody before they're a Christian. And then there's discipleship, and that's what happens after they're a Christian. I think I would argue, mm-hmm. at least on the basis of the term in its broadest sense, that all of those people are disciples. So making disciples is it, it's, is a whole gamut thing. So you start by evangelizing, which it is a subset because... of making disciples, mm-hmm. and it ends with glorification uh, through the sanctification. So their sanctification process after they come to faith in Christ. So I would say, what does it mean to make disciples? Well, it means everything that you've you've gotten to to in the habit of splitting up, like evangelism. Uh, and then we do discipleship, like l- training and learning to follow Christ, and even in your old years as you're growing with Him. All of that's discipleship. And I think you, as pastors, all of us are doing discipleship in different ways. I think, Jeff, as you're preaching from the pulpit, you're doing discipleship because you're creating, you're helping people in that learning process. As we're teaching TLC classes, or as we're teaching women's ministry or men's ministry or whatever, we're all making disciples because we're guiding people in that learning process of who Jesus is and what He's calling us to do. So... We're all doing it constantly, all the time, kind of as leaders, but then people within our groups should be doing it as well with their, with their kids, with their friends, family members. And I think therein is where the questioner, the person who sent the question is asking, so what does discipleship actually look like practically? So, so, so can I... Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's the question. So if the question is what's it look like practically, let me just go to the text itself, the central text that we're drawing from here, Matthew 28. Oh, Matthew 28. Okay, mm-hmm. so the, the Great Commission... So I'm reading out of the NIV, uh, verse 18, then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, now here's, here's how <laughs> baptizing them mm-hmm. in the name of the father, son of the Holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. So, so is in this text itself, I can point out three things in particular that go into making disciples. Uh, and in Greek, it's much easier to see because the main verb here is to make disciples, and there are what we call participles that modify that main verb. The first one is go. I know in the NIV it says, therefore, go and. You could just say going, make disciples. Okay, therefore, going, make disciples. So it's, the assumption is that you are going to go, but I would say that the first step to disciple-making is going. To what? To the mission field, mm-hmm. <laughs> to places where they're not, You're where they're not the there, right? And mm-hmm. when you get there, you proclaim Christ to them, and you what do you do when they when they profess belief? You baptize. You baptize. So baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what do you do? You leave them alone, right, for the rest of their lives because they're good to go. No, no, you teach them to obey all that I've commanded yep. you. So, so what does it mean to be uh, to to make disciples? Well, you got to go, you got to baptize. And you got to teach. And you stay there long enough to teach. Right. And I, well, I, I think that, again, this is what I was trying to say before, mm-hmm. is it incorporates the entirety of the mission program, right? From the, hey, we want to win you to Jesus. Hey, we want you to Jesus and baptize. We're going to baptize you now based upon your profession of faith. And then we don't stop. We're going to teach you uh, because that's what a disciple is, is a learner. Somebody who's going to learn the ways of Christ. Yeah, you know, something that we, as we look at this, something I remember from seminary in our evangelism class. In one of the first classes, our professor said, okay, leave your Bibles closed. I want people to recite 
Matthew 28, 19 and 20 from memory. Go. So people would say, okay, uh, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always till the end of the age. Hmm. So they missed and, that section. And the uh, professor's like, wrong. And they were, okay. So then somebody else would go, what did we miss? I don't know. And then another guy would try, and he'd kind of reword it a little bit different. But he, everybody, uh, every, yeah, basically everybody that went and, and uh, recited this missed out the teaching them to obey part. Did you... You Which stood is, up at the end and included that part. Yes, and then did I you was stand the up hero? and do a little dance I and go, not. "Oh yeah, Canada in your face." <laughs> <laughs> but I think in the church, I we, wish, I wish that was me. in the church. We've also all we often stopped at that conversion point and said, yes. "Okay, now they're good," and we haven't right. really put a lot of attention into the fact that they have to keep going for another sixty years to be good, right? Right, exactly. And so, it's not and the and church, I, and we I put the emphasis on the baptism and the conversion. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and I think the fact that that guys in seminary. Many of them had their bachelors from a Bible college. They had already worked many years in youth ministry or whatever. Their memorization of this verse didn't include that. And I think that shows what we've kind of emphasized as a church right. in the West is just convert them, convert them, convert them. Once they're converted, they're good to go. Right. But no, we have to train them up in the ways of the Lord, what he's taught, teach them to follow him and obey him. On what you said there is important, right? Teaching them to obey. Yeah. It's not just teaching them what Jesus said. It's teaching right. them to obey. To obey what he said. What Jesus said. Because lots of people know, but they right. don't want to see, obey. therein lies the challenge. Um, first, in order to teach something, you need to know it personally, and you need to be living it out. Uh, because if you're, disciple, if you're discipling someone, you're basically walking through the stages of life with them. So they will see you at your best, they'll see you at your worst, and everything in between. So would we say that healthy Christian churches are those churches that make disciples? So that's my first premise. Healthy Christian churches are churches that make disciples, because I would say that they're following the Great Commission, and that defines that those are marching orders. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so if that's the case, the healthy Christian churches are the churches that make disciples, then I would want to add, then making disciples involves all three of these aspects. Yes. Mm-hmm. So reaching out, mm-hmm. yes. winning, winning people to Christ, mm-hmm. uh, baptizing. Well, that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. You, that that you that they they're baptized, and then they're being trained. So so you should be finding in your local church uh, a significant uh, uh, effort to reach out to its community. Uh, you should be seeing there people who are being baptized, and I'm not saying it needs to be massive numbers because sometimes the Lord doesn't provide, doesn't give, <laughs> you know, as many people in their places in the world's hard. But you should, and you should also see that after the fact, people are growing in grace mm-hmm. in that church regularly. And if you if you miss one of these elements, the church is anemic in an area. It's not it's not actually making disciples the way that the New Testament teaches they ought to be made. Mm-hmm. See? Right. Yes. This is, a, mm-hmm. to me, honestly, a good, uh, what do you call it? Not paradigm, but, uh, yeah, taxonomy. I don't know, whatever. The, it's a list of stuff that I think is really important for people to do because, you know, a lot of times we try to figure out, oh, man, I don't go to this church. We, go, we try to figure out what churches we want to go to and we go to a new town or whatever. Or people who are out there wanting to, I want to go work for a church and stuff. That's the stuff you look for. Those are the big rocks. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, we have churches that emphasize, um, you'll find churches that emphasize the going, go, 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 but there's no teaching to, uh, to right. obey, teaching obey, obey. And then there are churches that will be focused on 
let's teach, 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 but not emphasizing the going, right? Mm-hmm. The going part of it. So finding right. a church that will balance that um, is not easy, right? And in balance, not not give up either yes. in the sense that we're not going to pull back in teaching all that he commanded uh, to mm-hmm. obey all that he commanded mm-hmm. or we're not going to pull back on outreach mm-hmm. yeah we're going to go whole hog on both of them see what happens <laughs> yeah you bet great and for our last question of the day we'll look at this one here by a listener who wrote in who said he gives a definition of socialism he says socialism is the government taking by force money from one person and giving it to another. Many Christians, including myself, receive money directly from the government. Is this violating the commandment, do not steal? If so, should Christians refuse to accept money from the government? It's built upon a a definition of socialism socialism. that I'm not sure that I, I necessarily want to agree with. How's that? Right. Yeah. Okay. How would you Look, by the it? way, the temple, th- there was taxes in Israel, right? And there, there were, um, yeah, I'm not, I, and so even on the theocratic Israel, they were taking taxes and redistrib- redistributing some stuff right. around. Right. Uh, so in a perfect world, should we, should we be giving, all, giving our money freely to one another? Yes. Yes, we should be helping that, that way. Uh, the problem is that I live among 51% of sinners. Do you right. know what I mean? Yes. The problem is those women. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying anything there. So those are not my words. Just kidding. Now we live out of 100 of sinners, right? And yes. so as a result, uh, yeah, we've had to come up with government systems that represent uh, a less than perfect image, I suppose. Yes. Anyway, that's my initial go at answering the question. But but somebody else can. No, I think if we if we look at Canada, I mean, when I was living in the U.S., they were saying, "Oh, that's socialist Canada you live in," and uh, honestly, they they just have it in a different way. They food stamps get handed out the the way we don't do that up here. Uh, different different ways of redistributing wealth happens down there as well as up here, and I think I think our our Western nations that have done this uh, to a certain extent, the way Canada and the U.S. have has happened out of their concern for those who are less fortunate, those who are legitimately uh, poor, unemployable, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I, when you, if you say socialism is completely uh, unbiblical, I, I think the intent originally, at least behind it, of the, the form that was, we have, is it was a good intent, but I think it can be taken well, he's, he, he's too far. He's claiming, though, that it's, it breaks the, the, the law not to steal. Right. Yeah. Well, then, then you'd have to say all taxes are. And as you said, the temple even had a tax back in ancient Israel. Um, you look at I'm all, sure somebody all could demonstrate. I'm taxes. sure that the. I, I'm just trying so. to think ahead what the response to that would be. Perhaps it's that uh, the temple tax was not used for the redistrib- redistribution of wealth. Uh, of course, the Levites were given uh, a lot of that, and it was forced upon the people of Israel to pay for the, mm-hmm. for the Levites. So in that sense, they were, there was a redistribution to certain parties within Israel as part of God's law. Right. So I, yeah, I, the premise I'm, I'm still struggling with yeah. and the definition, uh, yeah, it sounds like somebody doesn't want to pay taxes. Good on you, brother. Just, <laughs> just kidding. I totally kidding. I did not, I did not mean that. You should give to Caesar what's Caesar's. 
And to God, or to Jeff, God. what's Jeff's? Oh. <laughs> oh, Jeff yeah. has equated himself with Caesar. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> there we but are. my problem is that no, my picture's not on money yet. 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 Hmm. Well. <laughs> well. Hmm. Ezra. It's just a matter of time. That's on the bucket list. <laughs> totally cute. <laughs> Which bill do you want? Which bill do you visit want? Visit Oahu. Get my picture on money. Those are <laughs> yes. my bucket <laughs> list. <laughs> all right. Great. Well, thank you everyone for contributing today, and thank you all for tuning in and listening. And uh, Chris, I say you represented very well today. Thank you. Yes. I'll be invited back. You didn't have fifty-one percent of the conversation now. You should come back all though. the time. Actually, yeah, Crystal, you should come back all the time. Oh, you're better than Andy. Oh. <laughs> There's a four-person limit in this room now, I hear. Uh, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. 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 You got to rotate us through. Don't worry. We can <laughs> kick Andy out <laughs> and have a seat for you. You smell better. All right. Thank All you right. for listening in. We'll see you next week. 